you've got to have a good judgment of character and be able to judge people's character fairly quickly so that you know you're not being taken advantage of, which I think is a, is a, is a hard skill. Welcome to the podcast by Mikhail Alphon. Before we get started on today's episode, I just wanted to point out one of my sponsors, Mike Me Audio, who actually created that incredible intro that you just heard. Now, Mike Me is actually responsible for creating Gary Vaynerchuk's intro, as well as uh, Brittany Crystal's on her Beyond Influential podcast. And what I love about it is it simply gives your podcast that high-end, high-production feel that really grabs your listeners' attention. Now, the good news is if you want an intro for yourself, you can actually go to micme.com, that's M-I-C-M-E.com, and use the promo code MIC at checkout, and you'll receive 10% off your first intro. And they make the process really easy. All you got to do is set in your script, uh, choose your music, choose your uh, voiceover actor, and they'll create it for you within 72 hours. Again, check out micme.com and use promo code MIC, M-I-Q-K, and you know the Q comes before the K, and you'll get 10% off at checkout. But before I speak too much, let's get on to the show. What's up, socialites, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. As always, I am super pumped on this episode, but this one in particular because it is episode number 100, and for the 100th episode, I wanted to do something a little unique today. So uh, our guest today uh, actually came, grew up, I guess you could say, grew up in India and moved here permanently at the age of 13. And since then worked his way up to a successful career in real estate and has impacted so many people around him. And I don't look up to very many people, but this is the one person that I would say I look up to. Um, But before I speak too much, let me introduce my uncle, Devangsha, to the show. Well, what's up, everybody? Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be the 100th guest. Um, Well, I'm excited to be here. Let's start from the beginning. Uh, Let's talk about... Yeah, let's start. You know, we we briefly mentioned that you came here uh, at 13 years old um, from India. And I think it's very interesting living in Orange County. There's not too many people that that I grew up with that were like immigrants the way that our family was and things like that. So... Can you tell us a little bit about your life in India and what that was like moving over here? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually came back to the U.S. because I was born here in New York and spent a few of my earlier years uh, on the East Coast uh, and then spent my formidable preteen years in India in various boarding schools and with different families, um, families that obviously I'm directly related to, but wasn't always a traditional home uh, or in a traditional environment, I pretty much bounce around from one boarding school to the other over the last five to seven years that I was there in India. Uh, came here in 1988. Um, but India was uh, actually a great experience. As a child, I probably didn't appreciate it. Uh, but now as an adult, I definitely say, I would say that it's it's definitely made me who I am today or part of who I am today from having to move from school to school or be in a place that was um, very poor and rich in, in, in quite a contrast, um, you know, made me appreciate, I guess, what I have today and where my life is today as well. So, so um, from life in India, would you say that it was more of the poor side or the rich side that you experienced? 
Um, it was a little bit of both. I mean, poverty is, is rampant. It's all around you. Um, but I had a rich family, not just monetarily, but also in terms of a rich family experience, um, beyond my mom and dad. Um, I was, I had a lot of close family that I spent a lot of time with there and, and fostering that culture of family and what's important. I mean, you know, as a child, my idol and who I looked up to um, wasn't my father. In fact, it was my uncle, my mother's uh, older brother who, who looked after me for a number of years. Which one, just for my context? Um, Mama, as you know. Oh. Yeah. So he was, he's kind of the head of the family there. And, and I spent quite a few of my years under his care, uh, especially as mom and dad were here in the U.S. Yeah, trying to trying to make a living. All right, cool. So you know, Motabama had a lot with your upbringing, definitely on the richer side there. And then, what was boarding like school in India? That seems rough to me. Boarding school is very different than what you would hear or expect it to be in the U.S. It is it is definitely expensive. It's private, but. At the same time, you're away from your family for extended period of time. Um, you are forced to adapt in, in, and not just adapt, but you're also forced to become responsible very early on in life. Um, you have to pick up after yourself. You have to be responsible for your own things. You're really learning to become an, an adult at a very early age. Um, and that was, that was at the time, probably not what I wanted as a child, you know, typically before you hit your teens, you, you're very attached to your family and want to be around your family. And so that was very difficult because I would go months on end, um, not seeing any family and being around, uh, other kids my age. So that was probably the toughest part, Yeah. but, uh, I do feel like it made me, who I am in terms of being independent and and uh, adaptable to various situations. From going from school to school, one of the things you have to learn to adapt is to meet new friends and and uh, and value those friendships as well, uh, because your friends really do become a part of your your family there. Um, so, did you have a lot of friends when you're in boarding school there? I did. Um, I had friends from boarding school to boarding school. Um, I would say that I did not keep in touch with any of them except for one who I didn't actually meet in boarding school, but used to live uh, next door to me when I was, I spent my last two years in India, which was not in a boarding school. Mm. Uh, Yogesh, actually. Oh, okay. So Yogesh was my next door, kind of next door neighbor. Uh, who became fast friends and reconnected over the last 15 years. He moved to the United States uh, just about when I did. So when you moved to the U.S., was that, you know, was that grandma's decision or did you want to come here? What was, what went behind that? It was actually a joint decision. Um, Like, did you have an option to stay in India? uh, Well, it was a discussion that mom and I had and I had a desire to actually want to come back to the United States, I felt as though I knew I had a brother 
but didn't actually have a relationship with him. There's a big age gap there, and so. What is it? Eleven years? It's actually about nine and a half years. Oh, okay. Eight and a half years. Sorry. Uh, you like how eleven years keeps coming up in like everything I say. I have no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> Eight and a half uh, years age difference, and uh, uh, one is I wanted to be with him, and two, I always having lived here up to the age of four before or five before I went back to India, um, I dreamed of wanting to come back and. You know, I do remember being here as a child and I did have an understanding that higher education would be better for me here in the United States. And so at a pretty young age, I think I I remember distinctively having a conversation with mom and saying, hey, this is great and all, but I think we should move back to the US. And and it was a decision that we made together, um, not consulting my dad, because uh, he wanted to pursue his business interests in India at the time. And so we made the move to move back to the U.S. So now, was dad living in the U.S. at the time? Was living yes. in the U.S. at the time? But it sounds like grandma was living with you in India. Right. So, so my dad was just out here by himself. It, your dad was out here by himself. <laughs> um, this sounds like a shit show. <laughs> paving his own way, he was he he joined the navy for a number of years, and then eventually got stationed out here in California, where he eventually met your mom. Um, and then we were surprised by that we actually didn't know that you were born mm. for a good year and a half, and then and then we found out later on, and your dad was, and that I think was probably one of the impetuses impetus for us to kind of you know, say, hey, why don't we join the rest of the family? And, yeah. You know, Keith or Kathan, as he's known, is is married now, has a kid. And so that kind of got us excited. And we up and left and moved to Downey, California. <laughs> so when you moved here, then you didn't move, you didn't move back to New York. That's where my dad was. No, your dad was here in California. He was here in California. He was here in California, was living in Downey. We... We came to California because uh, you guys were here. Right. We actually had no connection in California whatsoever. Outside of my dad and my Outside mom. of, exactly. And so um, <laughs> I was secretly very happy about it. Um, one Coming beca- to California? Coming to California. Um, as a kid living in Bombay, I would... Uh, I had a lot of freedom, and so I would sneak away to the uh, English-speaking theaters in South Bombay and watch all sorts of movies, uh, all-American movies, Top Gun, Rad, and you know all these movies from the 80s that were all about California, California dreaming, and California life. And so the thought of going to California was was exciting for us. And so you know, it just so happened fortuitously that uh, that your dad happened to be stationed in California. And so we decided to make the move to California. Do you remember what it felt like, like landing in California, having Top Gun as like the benchmark for California <laughs> living? And then you're like, Downey? <laughs> Funny enough, you know, I I didn't, I didn't think down of Downey. I think I was very excited to be in California, be with family. Uh, for the longest time, if you think about it, I haven't lived in a family unit prior to that. And I wasn't, right. when I say family, it was um, with either with boarding school or with my uncle, but this was like the first time under two apartment roofs. Uh, did I have my brother, my mother, 
um, my sister-in-law, of course, and 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 you. Yeah, because we lived in the same complex, basically across across from each other. Yeah, I remember this guy with a parrot that lived downstairs. That's mm, all I remember. Don't remember from that. that. Like some ba- really like small things from that apartment in, right. in, in Downey. It, it's interesting hearing that because like my understanding of this the whole time was that uh, you were born in India, you moved to New York, went to school in New York, then moved out here when you were like 13 or something like that. Yeah, no, I, I did most of my early um, junior high and before in India. Okay. No, I was about five or six when I first moved to India. So you ended up going to high school here in California. Yes. What was that like for you as, you know, essentially immigrated, right? Yeah. I mean, I did my first year in Downey, which was in junior high. That was probably the toughest year of my childhood I could remember. Junior high, kids can be tough. They can be mean. It was a, you know, lower middle class community, not very gentrified or um, perhaps... uh, wasn't very diverse, actually, not not so much gentrified, but it wasn't very diverse. And so I came back, I had a little bit of an Indian accent, which was a tough, <laughs> tough thing to deal with. Um, I probably had more fights that year, just defending myself from getting picked on. Um, but, you know, when I look back at it, I don't think I'd change any of it because it's made me who I am in terms of made me a hard shell in some respects uh, and taught me to fight through. And, you know, that was tough. So like dad wasn't there to back you up, obviously. I'm assuming with a nine year gap, he wasn't like 22 and beating up on like middle yeah, school kids. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he probably didn't even know. I was pretty, I wouldn't share these, my issues a lot with, uh, your dad or m- my mom, for that matter, Why unless not? they were obvious, like yeah. where I got a black eye or broke my nose once. Why wouldn't you share it with them? Um, just because I didn't, uh, I didn't want to stress them with, I guess, my problems at a very early age. I just kind of felt like these were my issues and I had to deal with them. Yeah, and that probably just came from the fact that that's how I grew up, living in boarding schools. Is they were all my issues, so mm. uh, there were things that I kind of had to fight through and work through. Let's move to high school. Um, yeah. You went to high school in Cyprus? Cerritos. Cerritos. I always yeah. get the two mixed up, to be honest. kind of knew it was Cerritos. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what was high school like for you then? High school was very different. High school was very diverse. Cerritos was kind of a melting pot uh, of a lot of different ethnicities. Uh, we specifically left Downey. Uh, to come to Cerritos because of the school system there. And, um, you know, I had a great experience in high school. I started to discover who I am uh, as a teenager. Um, I was easily distracted from school. I played a lot of hooky, (laughs) uh, drank more than I should have probably. In in how old were you? In high school. So I was... um, well, I mean, 14 I, to 18. Yeah, I can't, because I, I always think about that. Like, I don't think I started really, this is kind of weird to say, but I guess everybody else does. I don't think I really started drinking until I was like 16 or 17. But Yeah, I would say yeah. that junior year onward yeah. is when drinking became more what would you commonplace. Do, what would you do when you played hooky? 
Well, I actually played hooky to go skiing with a good friend of mine. With Rajiv? Yeah, with Rajiv. So we would... Uh, but wouldn't that be like a hold? Is he older than you? No, he just, you know, he came from a decently wealthy family. He had a car, a Jeep. So we'd wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning. We'd dr- trek up all the way up to Big Bear, skied the whole day, and come back the same day. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy now that you think about it. But yeah, that's yeah. the kind of hooky we played. Is this one that you mentioned to me that you had like this dream of having, you know, having a house by the beach and then a house in the mountains? Uh, yeah. Is this when that dream started for- coming together? I think so. I think that probably came a little bit later, but I did love the mountains. Um, and I always had the dream of the California beach. Yeah. So as I got more into the mountains and skiing and all of that, uh, that definitely became a part of the equation of, I wouldn't say it's a goal or a mission or anything like that, but it definitely was something I thought would be a accomplishment to have yeah is a place by the beach and a place in the in the mountains yeah and we'll definitely get to that spot so you're playing hooky this whole time drinking i mean you're basically in high school that's what everybody did was grandpa around at this time was your dad around no dad was the dad wasn't around he was uh you know he was busy in india trying to um make a living and do do various businesses Mm -hmm. so it was basically mom who uh, had a lot of trust in me and is, <laughs> is you know, I did I abuse the trust? I probably did, but I think the trust is also what, what inspired me to change my ways after high school. Who instilled like the idea that you had to, you know, or maybe nobody did, but who instilled the idea that you had to, you know, go to a good school, get a good job and... Like that whole thing for you? Actually, nobody did. As high school ended, I found a lot of the friends I played hooky with and I hung out with were all secretly really smart and ended up going to great colleges mm. while I was twiddling my thumbs and didn't have a plan and didn't have the grades to make it to college, uh, or at least to a four-year institution. And so... I think it, that was when it, it came. I came to realize that a, um, I need to get my life in order, and b, um, I couldn't stand disappoint my mom and be a failure because she. We sat there in India, and I remember that distinctively. Making a decision, and part of my argument was to get a better education and have a good life in the United States. And here I am four years later or four and a half years later, and I've goofed off and became a better skier and drank too much to do what? She uprooted and left uh, India to give me the opportunity um, to have a better life. And I was going to waste that away. So I think that was profound enough of a reason to uh, get my house in order. That's pretty interesting. So, but did that, did that realization come like on your own? Like you just had this level of self-awareness at 19 years old or, or yeah, I mean, I, I actually don't even remember having a discussion with mom about the fact that I failed. So she didn't call me out. You just, you just felt that when you saw like Rajiv going to school and like all these things. Right. Exactly. 
Do you know how much better that makes me feel as a human being? <laughs> like this whole time, I thought you had it figured out. Just you no. know, <laughs> a lot of things I don't have figured out. <laughs> Continue to learn every day. Yeah, that's that's real crazy. Okay, cool. So uh, you you ended up going to a community college for your I first did. two years. I remember this conversation. Do you remember this conversation? Like at the pool at Grandma's house, and like. I misinterpreted something that you said mm. to me when I was younger and it was along the lines of like, I didn't have to go to college to start. What I was hearing was I didn't have to go to college. What you were trying to say is like, you could go to a community college and then graduate out. Right. Yeah. Dad didn't like that very much. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you land on, how did you land on USC? I wanted to study business. Um, uh, for the first two years, I was still trying to figure out what subject matters were of interest to me. Um, being in, you know, in the Indian culture, it was, this is before technology, um, believe it or not. Yeah, because um, you're supposed to work at Google now, I think, Yeah, right? supposedly I'm supposed <laughs> to work at Google now. But um, this is, you know, it was either you're an engineer, you're a doctor, you're a professor, just... You know, those are the expectations. I So I went through the motions of studying English and wanted to be a professor and then thought to be a cardiologist and studied biology and futz around with a number of other subjects, which all of were very interesting. Um, and I'm glad that I studied them. Uh, and then that's kind of the point of general education, actually. But ultimately, I decided um, I wanted to be in economics and business. Uh, not specific to any particular subject, but I just felt like I had a business acumen. And part of that was growing up up around very successful entrepreneurs, uh, such as my uncle who I'd lived with, um, and also not so successful entrepreneurs, um, but very hardworking entrepreneurs, such as my dad. Successful entrepreneurs, is that still Motamama? Yes, quite. <laughs> yes. I so I don't and I have a whole family actually. So I have no clue about most of this stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. so that a lot of this is really interesting. It's not that I have no clue, but like I've never had this conversation with anybody really. Mm. I've just been to their houses, been to like these sugar farms and That's like, true. sugar cane farms. So to a certain extent it's, it's very interesting to me. So you wanted to study business, which is right. Did you know so when I was in second grade, I was prompted with this question with what I wanted to do in my life. Or was it second grade? Yeah. You know, I told them that I wanted to go to USC like my uncle and be in business. <laughs> I really did. And it bummed me out for a long time. It bummed me out that I never went to USC until I like spoke there with Saba, Saba oh, yeah, like right. a couple years ago, two or three years ago. I was like, all right, cool. Cross that off my bucket list. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> that was all that I needed to do was that for, which is interesting to me. Like this kid who didn't go to school used to wear eyeliner in high school. And right. now I'm like giving a talk to their, the Keck School of Medicine. Exactly. That's interesting. Um, and then now, you know, doing some business myself, I think it all kind of came together yeah. in one way or another. But anyways, that's just me. When you when you finished college, did you know that you were going to go into real estate? Uh, no, not at all. What was your first job right out of college? Real estate. KB Homes? No, no. Actually, it was a development consulting firm. So I ultimately ended up focusing in finance at USC, international finance. Uh, which is all interesting and well. And I ended up interviewing with four to six investment banking firms. And I interviewed with one real estate development consulting firm. Mm. 
ultimately looked at all the offers I got and through the interview process, a lot of the investment banking firms, it was, you're gonna work 90 hours a week, you won't have a life and this, that, and the other, and you'll be crunching numbers. And and I, you know, that I think I probably expected and was okay dealing with, but I also remember getting snarky comments about my facial hair because I used to have a goatee and the appearance of the way I looked. That just didn't feel too good to me. <laughs> um, and so ultimately, on a little bit of a whim, I decided to uh, take the real estate consulting uh, gig. Um, and that's basically the start of my real estate consulting career. Mm. Um, and I can't say that I regret any any decision I made. You've definitely done a lot for, it seems to me anyways, that you've done a lot for yourself since then. I think we can probably skip the, all the, the, the intertwines, like, and I think something like the, kind of the minutiae of it, but I think what I, what I believe a lot of the listeners would be into is kind of hearing about what made you take the jump. Cause now like, you know, or at least for a long time, you were a consultant, you were working by yourself, you were an entrepreneur, so to speak, before entrepreneurship was cool. Now, like, everybody wants to do that. Um, but what did you do to prepare to make the jump and why did you do it? Well, I can't say it was completely well thought out. You know, in life, you have to kind of be nimble. And at the time that I made the decision, it was a little out of necessity in the sense that the company I was working with um, was having a hard time managing their assets and compensating me for what would what I believed was the right compensation. Um, and so to help solve everyone's problem, I approached them about going independent, but maintaining them as a client. Uh, so I started off kind of trying to solve their problem for, I guess, my own benefit as well. And that eventually led to some freedom in terms of my ability to meet other people and work on other projects. Uh, and so it morphed into that. I will say that it was a very difficult decision and a very difficult thing to do because the economy and real estate was still not on solid ground and I was taking a real chance by doing it. Um, but, you know, I felt confident in my abilities um, and I took a chance and sometimes you just have to take a chance. Who gave you the idea of, you know, going doing your own thing, but keeping past employer as a client? I just came up on it on my own only because there was still a lot of work to be done. And I knew, and they were very good good to me the whole time, but I knew where their constraints were and, and where, how they couldn't give me what I wanted. Mm. And so to kill two birds with one stone, um, I essentially said, I'll go independent. That'll allow you to free up uh, resources internally. And then I can start to work directly on your projects. So it worked out, it was a win-win for both. Um, so that was kind of the idea, started how, with that. How old were you at this point? So that was 2011, so 30, 
No, yeah. this wasn't this wasn't too long ago. Then. No, 2011, so yeah. eight years ago. So for me, it was like 36. not knowing the exact date, like, dates and timelines and things like this. Like I always envision it from afar, like it was longer ago. I guess maybe nine years ago seems like a lifetime ago now, though. Sometimes, <laughs> you know what I mean. Having a successful business for eight plus years is an accomplishment in yeah. itself. Doing getting past the first year was kind of a struggle mm. for me. Mm. <laughs> As for most, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, throughout this whole time, too, uh, and, and, you know, going a little off timeline here, throughout this whole time, too, definitely in my life, this is no secret to actually anybody listening. I mention you quite a bit on this show, and you don't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do hear it once in a while, for the record. <laughs> really? Yeah. Nice. All right, cool, cool. You've been such an incredible mentor to me, to Sean, and honestly, the. I think you and Graham are the people that keep the family together. Um, was there ever a mentor for you? That's a great question. I've looked up to a lot of people. Name like, one. My uncle for one. I think he was definitely somebody I looked up to for a long time in my life. Um, he was a role model of of how to be as a person, mm -hmm. how he was with people. Um, also easy to look up to him because he was very successful, but that wasn't really it. I just, having lived with him, seeing how he treats people, how he, um, you know, manages work, business, family, uh, someone of such importance, uh, always made time for me, his kids, made us feel like the center of the universe. So I looked up to him in in more than just professionally, but also in terms of uh, a person as a role model. Mm. Professionally, I I struggle to say that I've found a role model there or a mentor. To be honest, there are people I do highly regard and respect, but uh, in the traditional sense of a mentor, I probably can't say there is anybody. Mm. Was there ever a point in time where you kind of knew that you had to take on the role for me and Sean as a mentor and role model? Sean being my brother to the I, listener. I don't think so. I just, um, no, I think I just loved you guys and cared. And I, I never felt as though it was an obligation or a need for me to do that. Um, just loved you guys and thought, you know, you just do what you do for people you love. Yeah. Whether they treat you as a model, role model, or mentor, great. I just want to be a positive influence in your lives. Well, it's worked out so far for me. <laughs> for me, anyways, my brother. <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, yeah, your brother's uh, is a very intelligent man. I want to say boy, but he's a man now. Yeah, it's um, kind of scary. I still and, feel like a boy. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of us will always be boys. Yeah. I but mean, that's a different topic. You're looking around my <laughs> office right now. I have more Star Wars memorabilia than I do button up shirts. So right. <laughs> there's definitely a problem there. But, um, you know, it, it's just interesting to me, too, because throughout this whole story, like, I, I obviously know, like, how tight you and grandma, you and your mom were. But, mm -hmm. like, throughout this, like, to be honest, it sounds like, you know, grandpa and you didn't have too much interaction. Am I correct in assuming that? We, I think the later, latter years of, of my time in the U.S., our interaction did dwindle. Uh, but when I was in India, there was quite a bit of interaction. Um, and some of it very positive. I mean, 
My dad was a remarkably smart man, um, a very driven man, and a very hardworking man. So there's, you know, I would say I learned equally what not to do from him as I did what to do. And, and, and um, you know, he, he definitely contributed to my success uh, at an early age by trusting me and and putting me in situations at the time I hated it, putting me in situations um, to be involved in business and to go and present. I remember at the age, very young age of 20, he asked me to go present some technology initiatives he was working on uh, to the board of directors of a company in India. Great. I mean, this for is the a, experience or because he thought that you were going to do it well. I mean, I'll take <laughs> it for the fact that he thought I would do well. Um, but, you know, probably because he thought it would be good for me to uh, be put in that position. Because I remember always as a, as a kid, you know, he would always tell me if I wanted something, he wouldn't he wouldn't ask for me. He'd force me to go and ask for myself. And I think that really, that was very instrumental in developing my confidence with other people and situations that most people at very young age are uncomfortable with. It's really interesting seeing a lot of the parallels in both of our lives. I don't know if you see this <laughs> now that you're talking about it out loud. Right. Um, you know, my dad obviously loves me to the moon and back and whatever I really, and you know, we're good friends now, but it's like, it's interesting that there was a little bit you know, in the latter years, not as many, not as much interaction mm -hmm. for, you know, whatever reason. Um, but my whole time I was looking up to my uncle, kind of like how you were on your side, which is kind of funny. Um, what did you learn from your dad to not do when building your own business? I think it's how you treat the people you work with. He, because he was so intelligent and well-read and knowledgeable, he had very little patience for people around him. Particularly working in India, he had a heart, he had, he, his expectation was that everyone he worked with could see things his way and would understand his way of working. And in India, it doesn't work that way. It's very much about relationships and sweet talking people and, so on and so forth. And I think he'd had very little patience for um, for people that may not be on board immediately or didn't grasp the concepts of what he was doing. And I think that was his downfall um, in his ability to be what he, I think he could have been a very successful person and has been acknowledged for what he's contributed to India in terms of technologies. Uh, that he introduced from the United States to India. Uh, and he was actually recognized by the prime minister. Really? Yeah, he was given an award for um, introducing a certain technology. And so, you know, he, he was very forward thinking in that way, but he wasn't the best of people person. And that, and his temper uh, got the best of him and how he treated people. And And that's... That I think was probably the the biggest lesson I learned from him: what not to do. Yeah. So, what do you do now 
you know, because business deals don't work out, you know, even deals with your family doesn't work out and friends and things like this. So what do you do now to make sure that everybody that you work with is treated well? I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. And it's probably as simple as that. Um, do what's fair, um, do what's right. And, uh, and oftentimes I think it's helpful to try to put yourself in other people's shoes and try to see it from their perspective. It's a hard thing to do because uh, you're driven by your own motivations and goals and, and desires. But um, I think it's important to, to be able to do that. Because if you do, then you can relate to them easier. Um, and then once they know that you understand their perspective and can relate to them, uh, they're probably more amenable to agreeing. And, and, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you get your way all the time, but we meet somewhere in the middle and that's part of negotiating. Yeah. When I look at you and I observe you from, you know, hanging out with your friends, how you treat your kids, how you've treated me, mom, my brother, um, you're probably one of the kindest and most patient people that I know. Oof. I don't know if my kids would agree. <laughs> well, with, right. well, definitely with definitely with me, um, you know, and and from what I see, definitely one of the most kind people. Like I, I haven't met you know everybody that meets you like just has loves you really. This idea of kindness and this idea of you know treating people that you the way that you want to be treated, you know, where do you feel like that was taught in your lifetime? I definitely think I get my patience from my mom, from observing her and the type of person she was, is with um, family and friends and the community. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I would just say it just seems like the logical thing. How do you balance being so kind and generous to people without being taken advantage of? Uh, you do take advantage of. and um, People do take advantage of you. Uh, yeah, people have, yeah. but, um, but that's okay. I mean, you live and learn. Um, it's never going to be perfect. And if, you know, if they take advantage of you, you learn your lesson from it. Don't let them take advantage of you again. Sure. You've got to have a good judgment of character and be able to judge people's character fairly quickly so that you know you're not being taken advantage of. Sure. Which I think is a, is a, is a hard skill. Yeah. Do you just trust your gut at this point? You trust your gut. You you know you look at folks and try to understand where they're coming from, why they're doing it, um, and sometimes you have to accept the fact that they're doing it for their own self interest, or sometimes you um, have to say, you know what, it's it's fine that if that's the approach they're going to take, then we'll move on from it. Mm. It happens. Yeah. But you can't let that stop you from being who you are, right? Don't let the negatives dominate and change the way you are. And I think you'll find that there are more positives than negatives. Before we started recording, we were going through some of the points that I wanted to uh, cover in this podcast. And honestly, I could probably talk to you for a couple hours, but the truth is we have you know, dinner reservations at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, uh, the the idea of goal setting came up and uh, you told me the story and we mentioned it briefly of how you wanted a house by the beach and a house in the mountains to go skiing. And you had this like 
vision that uh, <laughs> it's funny thinking about it now of California, California living from Top Gun. This is probably why you play so much volleyball. Um, <laughs> I love to play more than I do. But yes. Um, you know, in my world and for a lot of the listeners, like goal setting achievement, this whole thing is, is prevalent. Has this ever been like a part in your life? Did you ever find yourself writing down goals or doing like a morning meditation or anything like this to visualize where you wanted to be? Uh, no, it's so funny. I think there's a, sometimes I get a little, I feel a little guilty because I don't have specific goals. You just naturally crush life. Uh, well, <laughs> trying to at least, um, I don't have specific goals and, and people ask me, what's your goal this year? What's your goal for the next five years? And I always struggle to answer that question because I don't have specific goals. There may be specific, eventually even a house or house in the mountains or this, this, that's just stuff in the end. Yeah. That's to me, that's not really a goal. That's just things. Um, you know, for me, if there is a goal that's, you know, to be happy, to make the folks I work with and my family and my friends uh, happy as well and being a good, you know, whether it's a parent, a colleague or or um, uh, a friend, uh, to me, that's, that's ultimately my goal, mm. you know. As you get older, you start to think a little bit about legacy. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gotten there yet, but. That's definitely something, especially after you have kids, you start thinking about legacy a little bit. <laughs> what would you want to leave behind? You don't know, really? I don't know. I don't know. So I, was, just, I was actually at a funeral uh, yesterday. Hey. Uh, not to be a Debbie Downer, but um, he's a family friend. And I was down at the funeral and I, you know, the he has uh, three kids and uh, five grandkids and a community of over 200 plus people that showed up to the uh, services. And uh, quite a few people had speeches up there. And, you know, you just, you can't help but to project and think about, and, and, and I was listening to all this and to help think about, what would somebody say about me, right? And, and they had such wonderful things to say about this person. Of course, it's a funeral, so you know no one's going to say negative things. But you know, the little—I didn't know him that well personally, but it was just remarkable to see how much of an influence and positive influence uh, and a force he was, uh, not just in his family, but also his friends and and his uh, community overall. And I think, you know, that's great. I mean. Look, you could aspire to be the president. You can aspire to aspire to be uh, a lot of things. Um, I think my aspirations are probably a little bit more humble uh, in that sense. Um, you know, uh, I think it just comes down to to be happy, and and I feed off from other people's happiness. Yeah, ultimately, I think that's what makes me happy. It seems to have afforded you some great successes in your career too. I think so. I think so. You know, it's funny. Uh, the things that you've accomplished, and of course, I don't want to, you know, I'm not about to like start dishing them out all over the show, but the things that you've <laughs> accomplished to me are, are absolutely incredible. I think, you know, when I, for a long time and still today, 
I think to myself, of course, like I have these, you know me, dude. Like I've been so, I've always wanted to be some form of a rock star. You are a rock star. (laughs) Thank you. And I have these grandiose things of like the private jet, the like crazy, like seriously crazy obnoxious things. Mm -hmm. However, when push comes to shove and I, and I, and I get real like practical, I guess you could say with myself, I look to you, I look to Nishi or Nishi auntie Nishi. And I'm just like, I just want to be like that. Like, mm-hmm. I think you guys are such a great, like, power couple together. You've accomplished so much. You guys have fun. You can still party, like, all this stuff. And for a lot of us, and when I say us, I mean myself, the listener, and a lot of people in my community, we believe that it's this endless hustle. I don't know if you know this, but it's like this endless hustle that we have to, that we have to deploy to achieve something close to what you have. However, um, observing you over the last, I guess, more closely over the last five years, it seems like you value, you know, hanging out more than you do like, you know, being face deep in your computer all the time. Um, how do you approach work-life balance and how do you make sure that you're always making progress while still like having a good time? That's an interesting question. And I would say that having a balanced life is critical uh, it is for me, at least. Um, it's in, it goes back to making being happy and making others happy around you. Uh, you need to be there for your family. The family is there for you, and their happiness is my happiness. Um, if it's my clients or the folks that I work with, you know, me being successful is is them being successful, and to see them. Me being happy is them being happy, and you know, in in the work life, it's it's about is measured by success. <clears throat> so, you know, and being phys- for me, I'm very active and physical, and having that balance is is critical to my mindset as well. Um, so, I, it, it's not easy, um, and I can't say that it's been easy. There's been some new changes professionally over the last seven to nine months, uh, been afforded a, an amazing opportunity with uh, the firm City View and uh, and their joint venture equity partner, both of whom have put a lot of trust in me. And uh, again, it's, it's a lot of responsibility, but um, I'm very humbled by the fact that I have that opportunity and going to try to make the best of it. And it's, it's not easy to balance it. I think oftentimes from afar, um, things look perfect, but they're not. And it's a lot of hard work to maintain a balance. And, uh, you know, it's it's never going to come easy. Um, but you have to strive to do it. And you have to make the effort to do it. Uh, as we're like wrapping up the show, I have two last questions for you. The first one is completely off topic and we didn't touch on it very much every listener listening right now knows that i'm a diehard new york giants fan this is your fault and dad's fault (laughs) why huh it's been tough since 2010 (laughs) i know but i mean put it in context i mean you could be a cleveland browns fan that's that's i mean their super bowl was today Getting Odell. I'm getting Odell Beckham <laughs> Jr. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. The Giants are exactly the team that I 
think fit who I am. And not because we fumbled the ball for the last eight years or whatever it is, but they do manage to do some, over the last few Super Bowls, accomplish things and accomplish the Super Bowl as underdogs and no one would have expected them to. Mm. And I think I kind of like that. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's who, a little bit of who I am. Um, um, not always hitting home runs and not the Tom Brady, but, you know, is able to be successful and, and, and do well year in, year out and, and then hit home runs and, and win championships when, when you least expect them. Yeah. So that's why. Would you ever change being a Giants fan? Like, like what? To anything else. Would you ever not be a Giants fan? No, I, I could never not be a Giants fan. Okay. I, I can always find something to blame just as other sports teams do. Um, you know, for the very long time, I had my sports affiliations with being on the East Coast. Mm. I think now that I've been in California and truly I feel like as if I am a Californian, I'm starting to kind of embrace some of the local teams. Sure. Um, and I can see why, um, you know, local teams are a part of our community. And uh, before it was all about sports and now it's, I see it a little differently. Uh, and I do wish for, you know, the Rams to be good, but yeah. if they play the Giants and Definitely rooting for the Giants. I, I love that. Was it you or dad that picked the Giants? <laughs> you know, it was your dad. He, your dad watched the Giants and he forced me to watch it on weekends when I wanted to watch cartoons. And that's how I became a Giants fan. Interesting. Because every time somebody asks me when I like why I'm a Giants fan, it's because my uncle and my dad used to force me to watch the Giants when I just wanted to watch cartoons. Exactly. Wow. So you are leaving that legacy that you were thinking of. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's my legacy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get to the last question, if somebody wants to connect with you after today, where how can they get in touch with you? They can email me or um, I guess call me, but you could definitely email me. It's a little bit of a long of an email address, but it's D Shaw, S-H-A-H at market, M-A-R-K-E-T-C-E-N-T-S advisors.com. Marketsenseadvisors.com. I love it. The final question for today is, if you could simplify your life's mission into one sentence, what would it be? I always love those questions. It goes back to the whole goals and setting goals. I, I think with life's mission, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. I'm still working on that. So life's mission's about my whole life. So we'll, I'll let you know once I die. <laughs> I love it, man. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you being here spending the time with me to do this. I know this is a little out of your element and more than my thing, but of course, for the 100th episode, I had to bring the guy that motivates me to do all this stuff onto the show. Um, to the listener, thank you much so much for your time and attention. If you love the episode, we would dig a five-star review. And if you didn't like the episode that much, feel free to stick it to us, but subscribe anyway, because we're going to have a lot of incredible people just like my uncle, Devong, back on the show. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.